Well, praise the Lord. Amen. That was a great final song for us to sing, a good admonition to our hearts to serve the Lord in our households and in our families and as one great household as the local church. We're going to be in Matthew 6 this morning. And as you're turning there, I want to just remind you of a couple things. Um, one is a couple health needs and one um, praise in that we had Cal Dunham here this morning, first hour. Many of you know Cal and Fran Dunham. Cal is a longtime elder at our church, and he had triple bypass surgery a few weeks ago and looks great today. So uh, we're thankful for him to have come and uh, recovered from that surgery. Also, I uh, just want to keep bringing before us Paul and Nancy McGrady. Nancy is a wonderful um, just lady and a believer in the Lord. She is, has been fighting uh, some pretty severe cancer that is uh, it's growing throughout her body. And she was here first hour. Uh, Paul is uh, the distinguished gentleman who's a greeter, um, kind of in the morning time. And Paul and Nancy are just praying for God's sustaining grace. So be sure to pray for them. We have a reminder to pray for them in our bulletin each week. Um, wanted to just bring those before us. Also, um, in the life of the Kratz tribe and household, we have uh, some visitors with us, with us this morning. Judy's parents are here. This is Ray and Barbara Payne. I, would you guys stand just so that everybody can see you? Um, we're thankful to have them all the way here from upstate New York. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we've been having a blast together so far. They are here through the rest of the month, so they tell me, and uh, uh, they are a great help and blessing uh, with all of the, the Kratz um, sort of, you know, energy in our home. They are a great addition um, to it to help keeping the peace. And uh, just as a little bit of a preview about who my father-in-law is, he, he is a police chaplain in upstate New York, and he kind of covers all of the northeast region, Maine, and, you know, all around, probably even down to Virginia in terms of, uh, you know, ministering to hurting people, people who have lost loved ones in the line of duty. Um, Ray and and Barbara Payne are just uh, incredible servants. They are a ministry that is a labor of love where they pray with people and uh, sort of bring uh, Christian dignity to the office of a police officer. And uh, so I am very honored to have them on on that score as well. Uh, I was talking to my father-in-law just on Friday about how long he's been ministering full-time. And if you combine 25 years, he was a senior pastor in Maine and upstate New York. You combine that with 22 more years, that's almost 50 years of full-time ministry dedicated to Jesus and spreading the gospel and his kingdom work. So be sure to greet them in the Lord later on. Well, now's a good time to greet each other. Let's stand up and uh, turn around and find somebody you've never met before, perhaps, and shake their hand and greet them in the Lord. Let's uh, return to our seats now. (laughs) 
And I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. This, this is a sort of a beginning point for a study on the Lord's Prayer. One of the most famous passages in all the Bible is what we're going to be looking at. And we're going to touch our toe into the shallow end of this prayer as it is a monumental text for us to meditate on and to be thinking about the life of our church and how we need to be prayers. We need to be a praying church. We were praying this morning as elders and talking about prayer and how we pray in pockets. We pray in Bible studies. We pray in home groups. We pray corporately, but we want that to all ramp up. And maybe a text like this will be what the Holy Spirit uses to prompt us to deeper prayers and higher praise so that we will have a testimony of intercession and seeking the Lord and watching God answer um, our prayers, our weak and feeble prayers that the God of the universe energizes to make things powerful and strong and miraculous all around us. So I pray that this text will do that for us. Well, follow as I read verses 7 through 13. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they, that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, this week I've been spending uh, some time with my in-laws, enjoying Again, as we all do when we have company from out of town, enjoying the sights and sounds and beauty of Alaska, it gives us permission to go and do things, right? Well, I was given the wonderful opportunity, and this is above and beyond all I could ask or think, but to go out in the Prince William Sound again. And this was just a marvelous trip that I got to take with my father-in-law, and we were boated out of Whittier, and you know, you kind of relive everything through the eyes of your guest, right? And so I'm watching my father-in-law's eyes pop out of his head and just seeing all of the sea life that was around us. Now, I'm going to make a lot about the sea life because when we fished, he was the only one catching fish. So I'm not really going to talk about that end of things. But anyway, yeah, I was really grateful that my father-in-law got, you know, the the majority of the fish booty, you know, and I, I kind of was just assisting in, in that. I netted a few for him at the very end, but, but the sea life was just on steroids. It was spectacular. It was kind of gray and overcast at first, and then the sun peeked through the clouds, and we were out in it all the way over by Montague Island, and we saw everything. I, I told the kids kind of a list of what we saw when I came home. We saw doll sheep on the way in, a nice flock, you know, eating on the side of the road on the way in. And then we saw otters lounging in the water. We saw sea lions sort of, you know, moving around on the rocks, puffing birds diving down with their bright toucan-like beaks. We saw Alaskan porpoises that look like miniature orcas, and you know, all around our boat. We picked up massive prawns that we, you know, were able to to eat, and uh, in our sort of shrimp basket, there was an octopus that had eaten up all the prawns, so I played with that slimy, you know, snot-like creature, you know, it was just gross, but, you know, marvelously gross, right? Anyway, so 
I'll leave it at that. We threw it back. It kind of splayed in the water and inked and got out of there. And then we saw, I saw a giant starfish on the side of the rocks. And, and then we saw, uh, you know, some whale spouts down in the distance. And you kind of pray, you know, Lord, it would be so great to see the whale surface around you, but you don't want to overly expect it. And then all of a sudden, and it's getting closer and closer each time I tell the story, right? It was 150 feet, then 75, and then 50. It was 50 first hour. So we'll move him back out to 75 feet. But there is the hump of the humpback whale right next to us, right next to the boat. You know, it flips down, goes down into the water, and and you see the tail splash in the water. It was just amazing to, to be out in God's creation. And it's one of those things where you begin to say to yourself, this beauty around me rivals any beauty on earth where I am. But what was surprising to me is that the longer I was out there, even though different things were happening around me, I would become familiar with the beauty, so familiar with what was beautiful that it began to become sort of, uh, I don't know, normal, normal and not eye-popping anymore. I had to, in essence, jog myself to, to re-say, wow, this is incredible and beautiful because I was becoming overly familiar with what was surrounding me. And as I was thinking about the Lord's Prayer, which this is one of the most majestic passages in all of the Bible, isn't it true that we become overly familiar with texts like these? And we become overly familiar with Jesus, with God. Sometimes we, we lose the joy that we first had when we were saved. We, we were excited about Jesus, and it's kind of like a distant memory. You know, there, there used to be this deep, heartfelt communion with our Lord, and I remember those days. And it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. This is one of the most familiar passages in Scripture. It's one that's been recited thousands of times by thousands of people. We sang it this morning. We sang it in a very heartfelt, appropriate way. But many people say this prayer over and over again without ever thinking about the words that they're saying without ever going deep into the passage and thinking about with understanding what these words and phrases mean. I remember being a junior high wrestler and we used to gather and say the Lord's Prayer before the match. And I saw, you know, an NFL team on TV recently saying the Lord's Prayer before they would play. It's said all over the place in religious and political venues, but do we really take time to carefully think about the words, what's there. And here's the point. Do we take time to look beyond the words to the God of the prayer, the one to whom we are praying to? We need to do that. It's interesting that verse 7 is talking about empty phrases, where Jesus is confronting pagan-like praying, where people just pray, and they're praying for praying's sake. They're praying to hear themselves pray, and they're praying in such a way that it's empty. And right in that context is the Lord's Prayer, which is the remedy for praying empty phrases. This is the solution for not being an empty prayer. And so often, our culture, and even in the church, people recite the Lord's Prayer in an empty way. They're using the remedy in a way that contradicts what Jesus was getting at in the first place. You know, verses 7 and 8 gives us the key to not praying in an empty way. 
in essence, the principle of verses 7 and 8 of chapter 6 is this. If you have a grand and lofty, eye-popping vision of God, then your prayer will be eye-popping and grand and big. But if you have a small vision of God, then your prayers will be small. So if you have a big God in your mind and in your heart, then your prayer will be big. And if you have a small, shrunken down God in your mind and in your heart, then your prayers will be small. That's what he's saying. We need to elevate our vision of God, our perspective of who God is. And when we do that, then we will understand with depth and meaning what the Lord's prayer is all about. Jesus is concerned about these things because he's confronting the idea of religion, of religious duties. Chapter 5 is where he's trying to correct um, the Pharisees' twisting of Scripture, where the Pharisees messed up the law of God, and they were, they were saying, look, you obey the laws of God out of this sort of superficial obedience. You do more and more before God, and the more and more you do, you'll please him. And, and Jesus is correcting that in chapter 5, getting the orthodoxy right, by saying, look, you obey the law from the heart, from a transformed heart. And then he goes right into chapter 6 and talks about how we need to perform our religion from the heart, from a transformed heart. We need to have a, a soft heart in our giving, a soft heart in our praying, and a soft heart in our fasting. Our religious duties need to come out of a transformed life. And here he's talking about prayer. Last week we began our discussion on prayer, and I pick up again in this at verse 7. Verse 7 is where Jesus is bringing up the second wrong way to pray. The first wrong way was in verses 5 and 6 when he's saying, Look, when you pray, don't pray like a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. This is one of the two wrongs way to, wrong ways to pray. Don't be an actor when you pray. Don't stand up in front of people and give these grand lofty prayers where you're more concerned about what you're saying than who you're praying to. That's what he's saying. He's saying don't be like that. It's easy for us to fall into that trap where we care more about what people think about what we're saying when we pray out loud than the actual prayer itself or the God of the prayer. And again, as I said last week, if we're going to be like Jesus and not be like the hypocrite, then we need to pray a lot more in secrecy than we do in public. Jesus went away and prayed all night long on his own, and then he would pray from time to time in public. Both are right, but the secret prayer should fuel the public prayer. It should. Well, we're not supposed to pray like the hypocrite. We're not supposed to pray like the Pharisee, and we're also not supposed to pray, as verse 7 says, like a Gentile. What he means by that is don't pray like a pagan. Don't be pagan in your praying. A Gentile represents all other religions besides the Jewish religion. And so he's saying, look, don't pray like the pagans do. The ones who heap up empty phrases, verse 7. What is empty, heaping up empty phrases? That's praying in a way like as if you're trying to ramp up your prayer in such a way that you would move God to do something for you that he wouldn't otherwise do. 
you're, you're praying in a superstitious way where you think that if you say the right words like a magical incantation, God will be moved to bless you in a way that he wouldn't otherwise. And you're, you're, just, you're just focused on your own energy and your own effort in prayer instead of focusing on him and resting in him. It's the idea of rubbing your magical bottle for your genie to appear and to grant you three wishes. That's what he's saying that you shouldn't do. You shouldn't look for some recipe or formula that's going to make your prayer work. Don't keep up empty phrases. Empty phrases is the same word for babbling. That's where the Greek word comes from. It's, it's an onomatopoeic word. It's a word that sounds like what someone was doing, and it's the word for babbling. You've probably heard or seen people in pagan religion babble or kind of um, you know, murmur through things as, as sort of their incantation or their mantra that they're saying over and over again to get something to happen. But even in the church, even as believers, even if we don't burn incense, maybe some of you do, but anyway, even if we're not burning incense, but we don't want to pray in a pagan way. Praying in a pagan way or praying where we're looking at our own efforts and our own formula for praying to get something to happen is praying in a frustrated way. It's where you you wonder if you can pray just the right magical formula to get something to happen. And when a certain prayer doesn't take, you shift it around and you want to pray it a different way or maybe more energetically or quietly or you're really worried about how you're coming off because you want it to work. And God is saying, if you pray in that way, you're missing the point altogether. In the church, we know that different um, things have kind of crept in. There are, you know, churches that practice forms of yoga and even transcendental meditation where they're they're blurring the line between uh, maybe what was harmless exercise and they bring it in and sort of merge it or syncretize it with Christian praying. It's the idea that you need to empty your mind to uh, sort of get in touch with your feelings. That's kind of the idea of yoga and transcendental meditation. But that would fly in the face of what Paul teaches us in Colossians 3.16, where he says, look, for the Christian, you're not emptying your mind, you're filling your mind by him saying, let the word of Christ richly indwell within you. So we have to fill our minds with a revelation of who God is when we pray. Philippians 4.8, how do you beat anxiety? How do you battle being anxious? Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but to think on whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's excellent and worthy of praise. It's uh, the anachronym for that is thruple. (laughs) That's how I remember it anyway. But um, that, you know, that's what we're supposed to be thinking on. We're supposed to be thinking on the blessed promises of scripture to give us guidance in our praying. Now, I recognize our mic might have gone dead. I'm just going to kind of power through it because i got to use my hands when I, when I preach. Also, uh, you know, I was saying first hour, we had a little technical difficulty, that in Barnes & Noble, I used to lead a Bible study um, back in the lower 48. And, I, you know, I thought I was just leading this intimate group of five. And my wife, she would go shop with the little kids. It was when Riley was a baby. She'd be over in the kids section across Barnes & Noble, and she'd be tracking right along with where I was in the chapter, you know, so I, I don't have a problem speaking up. <laughs> that was my little segue, but I think we might be mic'd again. All that to say, we need to fill our minds, not empty our minds when we pray, because again, your prayer life 
and the power of your prayer life is controlled by your vision of God, who you understand that God is as he is revealed in Scripture. If you have a small view of God, it's going to be harder to pray. It's going to be easier to be tempted to pray like a pagan because you're going to think about yourself and your technique. But if you have a big view of God, as the Scripture describes them, your prayers will be big and they will flow from that. All true praying flows from a correct and right and powerful view and vision of God. Verse 8 says this. It answers how you should pray. Not praying like a pagan, really not praying like a hypocrite. Jesus says in verse 8, do not be like them. Don't be like them. I love Jesus's, by the way, I love his version of biblical counseling. He saves so much time with an economy of words. Hey, you're doing this. Hey, do not be like them. <laughs> just, just stop thinking that way. Stop acting that way. Next. No. All right, here we go. He says, don't be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. You know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying two things. Number one, when you pray, recognize who you're praying to. You're praying to your heavenly father. He mentions the title here that God is your father several times in just a few verses. Several times. This is, as J.I. Packer put it in his classic book, Knowing God, this is the Christian's name for God. He's your father. So he says, don't pray like a Gentile pagan who has no clue who he's praying to. Where there's, there's distance between himself and his alleged God, pray to your heavenly father. And this is what your heavenly father is like. He is a God who sees into your life because you are his child and he knows exactly what you need before you're even asking something from him. You ask for a piece of bread, Jesus says, will he give you a stone? You ask for a fish, will he give you a snake? No, he knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly what's going on in your life right now. He knows what's on your heart. And so when you go to him and pray to him, there's no reason to try to whoop God up or affect God in some way to get what you want. It's recognizing who God is as the one who is completely omniscient. He's all-knowing. I come from a Christian tradition that would sort of disdain that thought with prayer. They would, they would put the accent mark on our effort in praying instead of on God. And I think we need to put the accent mark on God first and let our efforts flow from that. Come from a tradition where they would say, listen, you know, if God knows everything before you're praying for things, then why pray in the first place? Now, I understand that we need to sort of confront and monitor Christian passivity. It's easy to get passive and say, well, okay, you know, why pray at all? Because God is completely sovereign. And I understand that we need to pray effectual, fervent prayers, as James 5 puts it. But we need to pray energetically because we understand first and foremost who this God is that we're praying to. He's our Father and he knows exactly what's going on. You're not informing him of anything when you pray. You are the bottom gear that God calls you to be, and you're praying and you're giving your effort in prayer in an enfeebled way through our sin nature, 
Um, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're praying. And then that gear, as we pray, meshes perfectly with the sovereign will of God as the Spirit of God is interceding, basically greasing the gears and making what we're saying to be reinterpreted into what God's plan was all along in the first place. You've heard it said that prayer is more about changing you and me than changing God or our circumstances. Prayer changes us. It conforms us into where God is going. That's what the Spirit of God is doing when we pray. And when we don't pray that way, with that understanding, then we fall into superstition. We, we fall into sort of magical acts of praying. We need to first and foremost elevate up to God and go high so we can go deep into our prayers. Otherwise, we will fall into idolatry. It's good not to belittle God's omniscience. You know, Romans 8, 26 and 27 points out how prayer really works in a marvelous way. It's one of the most poignant passages on how God takes our efforts and synchronizes our efforts with his will. And I touched on this last week. Verse 26 of Romans 8, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray, for as we ought... But the Spirit himself, watch this, intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. That's where the Spirit is taking what we say, groaning effect, where the Spirit is interpreting what we say into fitting into God's will. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's what's going on. And then that's all in the context of the famous verse, Romans 8, 28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for the good. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's a New American Standard version there. It's important for us to go deep. It's important for us to have the right vision of God. He is our father who knows everything. He's not the senile old man in the attic, the one who's the man upstairs that we're trying to coerce into doing something for us that we think is best for us. He's also not our buddy that we're kind of walking through life with, putting our arm around and trying to figure things out with, trying to understand life. I remember I worked a security, a security job in California It was at this really pagan place. I didn't know how kind of pagan it was until I got there. I showed up in L.A., totally green from the East Coast, and um, got a job. A neighbor worked there, and it was California Institute of the Arts. And they have, you know, incredible talent. And uh, part of the uh, Empire Strikes Back was filmed in one of the rooms that I would go into. It was the saber fight between Luke and Darth Vader, but who cares about that, right? Anyway, but uh, yeah, so I was a part of that sort of world during the summer, and one of the security guards was talking to me about his relationship to the Lord, and he was saying that he was living with his girlfriend and talking about his relationship with the Lord, and I thought, well, this is a bit of a contradiction, so I was kind of reaching out to him and he said, yeah, you know, we're not doing anything wrong and we're not involved in any, any immorality whatsoever, but we live together. And I just kind of reach my arm around the Lord and say, it's okay, Jesus. 
It's just total blasphemy. And, and it's his way of, of dumbing down his accountability because he was really involved in sin. And so instead of being that way, instead of having a pagan form of prayer, we have to have a lofty view of God that will control the way that we pray. You know, I, I know of no better place in Scripture that shows the difference between pagan prayer and true Christian or believing prayer than 1 Kings chapter 18. So turn over there in your Old Testaments. We're going to look at Elijah's prayers versus the pagan's prayer. Pagan prayer versus real prayer. Prayer that had formed a false vision of God, and that's seen in the pagans, contrasted with prayers that were fueled by a true vision of God. This is Ahab, King Ahab, and his 450 prophets versus one man, the prophet of God, Elijah. Look back at 1 Kings 16. 1 Kings 16 gives us a running start for what was going on. Ahab was a wicked king, one of many in the line of kings, over Israel. Israel was the northern kingdom after it had had split in 722 B.C. You had King Saul, King David, King Solomon, then you have the split. Jeroboam, he was the king in power who jumped up to Israel, and then you have Rehoboam who remained down in Judah. And then you have the line of kings who followed after the idols in the northern kingdom. And this is one of them. King Ahab married to his godly, saintly wife, Jezebel. Just kidding. And they were sort of partners in crime. Uh, There's kind of some humor here in 1 Kings 16, 25. There's a reference to Ahab's father, Omri. And it says, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. Well, Ahab probably looked at his father and said, I'll show him. He thinks he can be bad. I can be really bad. And so verse 30 says, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. What they were doing as God's people, right, God's nation, is they were worshiping a Canaanite god called Baal and also the Ashereth, which was the female statue of immorality. But Baal represented the god of thunder, and he was the one who would bring the thunder and the lightning and the rain, which would water the land and the crops so they could grow. And really, this was the god of their appetites, because they were saying, Oh God, oh Baal, rain down on us so that we can live. Well, Elijah came to town as God's servant and basically said, You've got the wrong god. You think your Baal controls the plumbing upstairs, well, you know what? The true God is going to shut things down for a while. And for three years, Elijah proclaimed and declared there was going to be a drought which would lead to famine. That's 1 Kings 17.1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, the Tishbi of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives... Before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain three years except by my word. Three-year drought, which was a judgment on God's people. Now, because Elijah could do certain things like this, right? He was, he was an instrument in God's hand where he could show up and say, look, it's not going to rain. And then later on, you could read that 
Elijah outruns Ahab's chariot back to Jezreel. He lifts up his tunic and outruns him. He was kind of known in ancient times as a superhero, kind of an immortal, like a mythical god. And they would make statues about Elijah and his great power. But really, that's not who Elijah was, and it's not who he made himself out to be. James 5 represents this in the context of praying for each other in the church and praying for the sick. He points out that Elijah, James 5, 17, was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was just a man. He was used in powerful ways, and he was a prophet of God, but he's just like you. You might say, how can I pray like Elijah? Well, he's like us. And the Bible points that out for a specific reason, so we can relate to him and try to be like him. Verse 2 of 1 Kings 17 says that he was operating according to the word of God, the word of the Lord. In verse 1, he said that it won't rain except by my word, but verse 2 immediately puts that in context because it says, and the word of the Lord came to him and God was speaking to him and told him to go to the brook Cherith so he could drink and be sustained there. The ravens fed him there, verse four. And then it says, verse five, so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. That's who Elijah was. He was a man in communion with his God. And you know what? Here it is. He knew God's timetable wasn't that Elijah was anything special. I mean, he was a prophet set apart by God, but he was just in touch with where God wanted him to be, and he said what God wanted him to say, and then powerful things would happen. But he was just a man. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. You basically have here Elijah confronting Ahab for the sin of idolatry. And the Lord is ready now to bless the people, the Israelites, three years later and open the plumbing again and rain on the earth. But Elijah needs to make clear that it's the true God who's going to cause the rain, not Baal. That's the point of chapter 18. This is about the true and real God. But look again, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah and in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. That's the insider information where we see what's happening in the heart and life of Elijah as he communes with his God. Show yourself to Abraham. So he does that. And then he invites, or Ahab, and he does that. And he invites the prophets of Baal to come to Mount Carmel for a showdown. It's time for the 450 prophets of Baal and others to come into the octagon and to have a showdown. Here it is. You've got verse 17 of chapter 18. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. This would be center stage. This mountain was more like a hill where all of Israel could gather around and sit ringside to watch this fight. And therefore, send and gather them, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah, 
who eats at Jezebel's table. So 850 against one at Mount Carmel. Get your popcorn. Here it comes. This is going to be the showdown to see who the true God is. Elijah was setting the conditions for the battle in verse 21. It says, it came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450. And so then in verse 24, if you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. In other words, the one who strikes lightning on Mount Carmel and consumes That sacrifice, that one is God and the other is not. And verse 24 says, all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. All right, we agree. Well done. We'll we'll take the challenge on. So in verse 25, he told the prophets, choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So he says, slaughter your bull, make your altar. And so verse 26 shows pagan prayer. It says they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning till noon. Again, that's all they've got. They don't really know their God personally. So the, all that they can do is exercise themselves in prayer and get all whooped up and ranting and raving and parading around their altar to try to make something happen magically. Oh, Baal, verse 26, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered and they limped around the altar that they had made. So Elijah wants to stir things up and really make an example out of them. Here's some humor of God where he's mocking them out loud saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. Um, The exegesis there is he's going in. uh, Your God must be going to the bathroom. Where is he, right? He isn't showing up. He's in the restroom. Or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and, and they really got, you know, in a, in a frenzy where they're cutting themselves, as was their custom with swords and lances and the blood was gushing all around. So it's just a gory, silly, awful, kind of gross effect up there. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So what this is a setting... Elijah now says, okay, he's probably, you know, doing this so everybody can lean in. He's saying, all right, come near and gather around. And he, he repairs his altar and he lines up the 12 stones around his altar that would symbolize the 12 tribes of the sons of Jacob, verse 31. Because he wanted it to be clear that this was the God of Israel, the God of his father's who was going to answer this prayer. So he, verse 32, he rebuilt the stones. And then in verse 33, it said, he put the wood in order and cut the bull pieces and laid it on the wood and said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. 
He said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with the water. So he dug a moat around the altar and it was just drenched with water. There's no way that he was going to pull some fast one on them and light the, the wet wood so that it would appear that God had answered his prayer. No way he was going to pull a fast one on them. Now verse 36, here's the prayer. This is praying like a believer. Notice Elijah's big vision of God that drives his prayer. It says, at that time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. Stop there. Elijah wants to make sure that everybody knows that the one he's praying to is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. This is Yahweh. This is the Old Testament God of Israel. This is the one for whom Israel should have been worshiping. This is the right God. And he's documenting this prayer in history with you know, with the Bible, with God's word. He says, that is this God, and I am your servant, and I have done all things at your word. He's basically saying, God, this is who you are, and this is who I am as your servant. I'm nobody, and you are everything. Verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. That's his point. You know, if you think that prayer is first and foremost about you and your circumstances, you're missing the point of the Lord's prayer. You're missing the point of Elijah's prayer. You're missing the point. Prayer is about God. Prayer is about putting God on display. Prayer is about being in sync with the will of God and the word of God and watching God perform it in front of us. We participate in this. God allows us to pray. He draws us to prayer because we know he's our father and we know that he knows our needs. And we can enter into his will as we will yield ourselves to him like Elijah did. A man with a nature just like yours was praying this prayer at center stage. And the reason he was there and God allowed him to be there is because he was all about promoting the glory of God and not himself. He wasn't praying like a pagan. He knew this God and he knew that God was going to answer his prayer. Guaranteed he knew it because he was in touch directly with the will of God. Verse 37. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Verse 38, what did God do? Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, what? The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now Jezebel had slaughtered many of God's prophets. And they died, in effect, to set up this moment where God could be glorified and magnified through Elijah's prayer. 
But now it was time for God to judge these false worshipers, these pagan prayers. And they were. They were judged. Say, how do I pray like this? How do I take time out and elevate God in my mind and grasp a great big vision of God that will drive my prayer life? That's important, and that's what we find back in Matthew chapter 6. Turn back there. For us to go deep so that our prayers will go high, we need to begin with a true vision of God, with a Father who knows what we need before we ask Him. We need to allow these phrases in the Lord's Prayer to recalibrate our thinking, to reframe our thinking about who God is, and to also reprioritize what we should be praying for. You want to pray in accordance with God's will, pray along these lines. Maybe not these exact words, you might pray these exact words, but these words serve as mile markers to bring us along in our prayer life. You'll see there on the screen, the Lord's Prayer, it brings us six mile markers, and that's where we're going over the next couple weeks. A true vision of God, a big vision of God will make your prayer life big, and a small vision of God will make your prayer life small. I want to touch our toe into the first phrase of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says in verse 9, pray then like this. Don't pray like a pagan, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God is your Father. The title Father was only used 16 times out of 39 books of the Old Testament. Only 16 times. And most of those references in the Old Testament don't talk about an intimate relationship with God as Father as much as God being the Father of a nation, which was Israel. When Jesus came on the scene, you see in the four Gospels that he called God Father every time save one. And that was when he was on the cross and the sin had separated himself from his heavenly Father. But all through his life on earth, he called God Father. That's the Christian's name for God. That's the name you should call God. As you commune with the first member of the Trinity, he is your father. You might say, well, Jesus, he was the second member of the Trinity. He had that special relationship where he was sort of marked out as God's son. And so, of course, he was calling God his father. But Jesus, as he said when he was resurrected in the garden talking to Mary, he said, you know, I pray to my God, which is your God, my father, which is your father. There was a transition going on. And for all believers, through all the ages, as the church, you have a relationship with your God, who is your Heavenly Father. Jesus, in essence, said, look, let me model for you what you have. Let me show you, in real time, the blessing that you have in your relationship to God. Yes, he's holy. Yes, he's hallowed. Yes, he's transcendent. Yes, he's glorious. But he's your Father, and you're his child. It gives meaning to the words in verse 8. He knows what you need before you ask. He's your father. Romans chapter 8 says that our spirit, our inner man, it connects. It bears witness with the Holy Spirit that we are sons of God. 
There should be stirring that's going on in your heart where you know that you are God's child, that he's your father. In Romans 8, it says that God is called our Abba Father. He's our daddy. Here in Matthew 6, the word father is pater, which is still an intimate term, and it's the term for God being our papa. So there's an atmosphere of respect, but there's also an atmosphere of intimacy. And this title, Father, should guide our prayer life. We should want to go to God in prayer because he's our father. He knows what's going on in your life, and you should just be able to shift gears and say, Father, I need you. I need you this day for this reason, for this priority. I need you for daily bread. I need you for sustenance in my spirit. I need your help. He's your father. And when we don't have the right frame of mind about God, if he's not big enough as our father, we won't go to him very much, very often. We should be reverent, but we should be reverent towards the one who knows us personally and intimately. He's our father who's in heaven and holy is his name. All right, let's look at a few points for application. Things to take home. Number one, you need to focus on the quality of your words, not the quantity of your words. Paganism would focus on quantity, just like the Pharisees in their hypocritical obedience. They're saying, look, do more and more. And Jesus is saying, no, no, be more and more. Go deeper and deeper. In the same way with praying, it's not pray more and more words. We should focus first on who our Heavenly Father is and let that guide the quality of the words that we'll pray. Number two, even when you have a rushing need, you need to remember first who you're seeking. You're seeking God. I was thinking of Peter as he was walking on the water and his prayer where he cried out to Jesus, Jesus, save me, I'm drowning. Even when we say, God, help, we need to be thinking first, God, your your heart should go up to him first as you are also crying out to him. Otherwise, you're just praying to yourself or you're praying to be heard by others. Got to go with God. If you're not thinking about God, it's hard to make a case for the idea that you're really praying at all, right? But God gives us his Holy Spirit and his word to help us, to guide us to him. Number three, let God's omniscience draw you to prayer. It's meant to draw you instead of repelling you. You know, doctrines get twisted up and people give certain things a bad rap. Even omniscience, people will say, look, that's that's, um, you know, distasteful because it's bordering on this sort of hyped up, you know, version of God where he's just this big computer in the sky that has everything figured out and he's impersonal. Well, no, that's not the point at all. The point is God knows what you need. He knows your life and it should draw you to him rather than repel you from him. It should ease the pressure in your praying and help you. Even though it can be a temptation to be passive in your prayers and say, look, why do it at all? We need to pray because God knows you and wants you to be a part of his sovereign will in our praying. Number four, think through your prayer habits without butchering your prayer habits. And be careful not to be judgmental of other people's prayer habits. You might say, look, you know, I, I, 
I want to analyze and examine the way I pray with the Lord's Prayer. I want to lay my prayer life up against the Lord's Prayer and, and kind of go to school. And that's a good thing. We need to go to school about our own prayer life. We should. We should examine ourselves. But don't be overly critical. You've grown up in a certain tradition with a certain home. You've been discipled by certain people. People have influenced you with certain phrases that you use when you pray. Certain cadences that you, that you have when you pray. And certain things that you pray for. I mean, don't butcher that. That's part of how God has made you and raised you up. Luke chapter 6, says, after you've been fully trained, you'll be like your teacher. It's okay. It's okay to pray like you've been taught to pray. But we need to, you know, be careful to sort of draw our pointers and our information from, from the way the Lord designed us to pray without being overly critical over the way we pray. And here's another sort of gentle admonition along those lines. Let's not be overly critical over how other people pray. When people pray and they use God's name over and over or say, you know, Heavenly Father at the beginning of every sentence or whatever, don't, don't go there in your minds. For crying out loud, don't do that. You know, we don't need to be overly judgmental about other people's hearts when they pray. We've got enough going on where we're examining our own hearts, right? We need to be gracious. And we need to be concerned that our own vision of God is large, And you know what? If you have a large vision of God and you're praying as an overflow from that vision, it will affect and impact other people as you pray with them. They'll want to know how you pray and they'll want to pray more with you. Next one, use the Lord's Prayer as a guide. It's a guide for who we pray to, how we pray, and what we pray for. Sounds like a good pithy sermon outline to use. But anyway, it should be our guide. We need to be meditating on this section of Scripture over the next few weeks praying that God will make us a praying church, a praying people with a praying testimony. Lastly, are you praying intimately to your father? If there's one application that you don't want to miss over the next few weeks, it's that you should be praying more. I mean, it's one of the most sort of guilt-ridden principles in all the Bible. How much do we pray? How often do we pray? Well, let's not get hung up on that. Let's just pray more. Let's just pray more. Let's just see this as God's plan for this year in 2010, this summer, midway through. Hey, we're going to pray more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to find God, my Father, in secrecy. And I'm going to elevate my vision of Him. And I'm going to find myself this summer praying more than ever before about my needs, about God's priorities, about God's glory and God's will. And you know what? It'll transform your life. And it will transform others around you as the power of God is on display through answered prayers. Let's stand together as we close. You know, this is a time right before I'm going to pray my final prayer to just encourage you that if you need counsel or encouragement, if you want to pray with me or others up front, we have counselors, men and women up front to pray with you sort of on the front row. We have an information table over here that is um, manned by a pastor to help inform you about what's going on in our church, help connect you with people. And if you need anything at all, we want to be here for you. We also have some refreshments and coffee in the back. We don't want you to rush out and go off to lunch necessarily right away. Be sure to connect with somebody. Ask somebody what you can pray for them about. There's probably no better question you could ask somebody after a morning on prayer. How can I pray for you? Let's apply this. Let's apply this as a body. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can commune with you with instant and ready access. Lord, you are magnificent and glorious, and you're set apart from everything. But Lord, we know that we have an entree with you through the Holy Spirit. Lord, we are sinners who find ourselves overly familiar with you. Just like I was on that boat out in the Prince William Sound, I became overly familiar with eye-popping creation, with your glory that was all around me. I had to keep reminding myself to, to see it, to taste it, to enjoy it. And I pray that this morning has been a beginning of a reminder for us to pray to you and pray with a vision that is glorious. Telescope our vision of you. Let us see you as just magnificent, matchless, glorious, and draw us to yourself this week. You are our Heavenly Father. You are our God. And we thank you that we know you in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Dismissed.